All right, this week I did some digging. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 28. We'll get there in a second. Um, But this week I was doing some digging, some historical research. I had uh, laid out my sermons this fall to give myself this week. I thought I would preach on generosity and stewardship and um, in conjunction with our one-year anniversary of our Living for Jesus, Leaving a Legacy plan. And so uh, I was doing some research, trying to kind of wrap my mind around what the Lord would speak to us today. Digging through boxes of historical documents, going back to our church's founding in 1939. And there are three boxes and then three um, photo albums that I kind of dug through. And I read minutes from church member meetings, uh, church conferences. I read minutes from deacons meetings all the way back to the, y'all would love this, John. In this, we've got all the deacons meeting notes from the 70s and 80s. So you can read what the deacons were talking about on Sunday afternoons. I looked through those, just thumbed through. Uh, I looked through photo albums, old church directories, and came across this. It's called a tabulation of census for September 1st, 1944. And it's pretty amazing. I've got a little clip of it up here on the screen. You can kind of get the idea, but if you want to look through here, um, you're more than welcome to. Essentially what it is, is in 1944, the men and women of this church compiled a list of names, addresses, religious preferences, and church membership information on their neighbors. There are a list of over 200 people here who are church members in places like Dilly, Carlsbad, Texas, Prairie Lee, which I guess back in 44, Prairie Lee was a lot farther than it seems now. (laughs) But they identified over 200 people who didn't have a local church home. And they were going to find them. They were going to go after them. In fact, they called them prospects, future church members. And I just love that. As a pastor, that is like lighting a fire underneath me that gave birth to the sermon I'm about to preach to you today. Because I started thinking about it. 1944, for me, my, grand, my granddad, born in 43, World War II, all that seems far away. And as I look back on it as a pastor today, I'm envious a little bit. Man, wasn't life simpler in the 40s? And then I look, and it's September 1st, 1944. So I do a little digging to find out what's going on in the world around this time. You know, three months before, the Allies invaded the beaches of Normandy. And it was a whole year away from Japan surrendering and the official end of World War II. Now, somehow, in the midst of a world turned upside down, I think there were six men from our church who fought in World War II, uh, dozens from town, uh, many of them died. In the midst of chaos, sound familiar? Midst of uh, disruption to the normal way of life, some faithful men and women at Central Baptist Church found time to put together a census tabulation for September 1st, 1944, of 200 people who didn't know Jesus. And I got to think, what makes a group of people do that kind of thing? And this morning, I want to tell you what it is. It's the Great Commission, what you know, and what we're going to see here in a second from Matthew 28. You know, that's the only thing that compels anybody to overcome chaos and disruption and make this kind of thing a priority. And this is the question that hit me. 
You know, it's obvious the men and women of Central Baptist Church in 1944 believed with all their heart that Jesus had called them to join him in his disciple-making mission in their generation. Jesus had called them to join him in his disciple-making mission in their generation. He had a job for them to do. He was expecting them to reach the people in their town who didn't know him. And here's the question. Do we share that same conviction? Do we believe that Jesus has called us to join him in his disciple-making mission in our generation? It's great that these people did this a long time ago, but what about us? And so if we have any hope of leaving a legacy, it won't be because we've transformed the look of the building. It'll be because we've transformed the look of the town by joining Jesus in his disciple-making mission in our generation. And so to get there, I want to walk you through a familiar passage, the Great Commission here in Matthew 28. And so hopefully you've got your Bible open already and you're ready to go. I'm ready, you can tell. It's going to be a hot one. Matthew 28. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, it's my firm belief that the men and women of Central Baptist Church in 1944 knew this passage, and they believed it was speaking directly to them. In that, they were not really all that different from countless generations of Christians who had gone before. I mean, we know this as the Great Commission. Not every passage of the Bible has its own little nickname. Only the important ones do. And the Great Commission is important. It has guided and dictated the mission of the church from the beginning. And there are really two reasons why I think that is, why this passage has so much significance for influencing the church's mission to the world. All right, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now what they are, and then we'll work through them one by one. The first is the context of the Great Commission. makes it highly significant. It means it's going to influence everything the church does. But the second one is, is probably more obvious. It's just the command of the Great Commission. And I think if we look at these two things together, we'll see how people in 1944 and in 33 A.D. come to have such a grip believe that God has a hold on them so much that he is compelling them to go and make disciples. And so first I want to show you the context of the Great Commission, and particularly the historical context. Uh, Matthew lays it out there for us. He says he he drew the 11 disciples to the mountain where he had designated for them. This is a historical event, right? It, it, It happened in a particular place. Some scholars think that this mountain in Galilee is the same mountain that Jesus delivered his Sermon on the Mount from. And uh, we'll get into that maybe in a minute, why that, that makes a lot of sense. But we're not told, but there is a mountain in Galilee where Jesus met with his disciples, and it, it happened that way. I mean, Jesus is coming. You can maybe imagine this. The 11 disciples, that's the 12 minus Judas. They see Jesus coming from a distance. They're waiting at this rendezvous point. 
knowing he said he's going to meet them there, got something he wants to tell them. And they're kind of twiddling their thumbs, wondering where Jesus is. And they see him coming towards them. And as he's coming, a crazy thing happens. Some of them feel compelled in their hearts to bow down and worship him. See, this is the historical context. This is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Uh, This is the same Jesus they had lived with for three years, learning all his teaching, the same Jesus they had seen die on a cross and had witnessed his burial in a tomb. This is Jesus, but not the Jesus they knew before. This is the resurrected Jesus, glowing at times. At other times, not really looking like himself. I mean, he is him, but it's obvious that he's not quite him. Maybe you remember the story in Luke 24, where the two disciples are on the way to Emmaus, and they don't recognize Jesus, even though he walks with them for a great deal of time. And so some of them see Jesus coming, and they bow down and worship, but others are like, are we sure this is really Jesus? And are we sure if this is Jesus, we're supposed to be worshiping him? Now, the word there for um, doubted can also mean hesitated. And so I think they're just trying to really grapple with what is going on here. I mean, the historical context of the Great Commission is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But here is the risen Jesus about to tell his disciples something important. And because of that, it's going to have great influence on everything that comes after. But there's another reason the historical context is important. Not just that it's the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, but it's that it's almost one of his final words to his disciples. Um, I've in the past conflated this with Acts 1.8. And in studying this this week, these are obviously two different events. So whether it's the final thing before Jesus ascends into heaven, or whether it's a few days before that, the words Jesus is about to speak to them, Matthew tells us he came to them and spoke to them, saying, whatever words he says are going to be some of the last things Jesus ever tells his disciples. They've they've heard of a lot from him. Matthew, in particular, he's devoted to all the teaching that Jesus did and collects it into five different sermons and sections. They've heard a lot of things from Jesus. But because this is one of the last things they are going to hear from him, it's going to have a lot of significance in their mind. In that way, it's like um, one scholar calls it his marching orders. So Jesus collects his 11 disciples, and he says, Guys, I've been teaching you for three and a half years. I'm about to leave, but here's what I want you to be doing while I'm gone. And because of that, those last things, those last words ringing in their ears are going to have an, an un, or, or maybe an outsized, an, an oversized influence in their minds. They're the last things Jesus said to him. Uh, maybe you were that way. Maybe you had an experience where you've heard something from someone, and it was the last thing they spoke to you before they passed on, and it is influential in your life. I have a story like that. Uh, in 2008, God got my attention in my macroeconomics class and said, Brad, you've run enough. You're going to preach. And so I surrendered my life to ministry, and a few months later, I was at work at the pool store where I worked. I uh, I guess I was like 19 years old, and it was from my grandpa, my dad's dad. And I was thinking about this this week. I don't remember my grandpa ever calling me other than this one time. I'm sure he did. Maybe he called me on my birthday, um, but I don't remember it. In fact, I don't remember many conversations with my grandpa, Um, but I remember this one. He called me, he said, Brad, I just want to let you know how proud I am of you. 
that your granny and I have been praying for you. We knew that God had a plan for your life and you couldn't outrun him. You be faithful to him and it'll never serve you wrong. A few months later, my grandpa has a heart attack and dies. It's the last time I spoke to my grandpa. You know, I think about that all the time. And I think for Jesus' disciples, this great commission had that same kind of impact. This is one of the last things the master said to us. Oh yeah, the Sermon on the Mount is great. Oh yeah, the Olivet Discourse, telling us about the end of the world. That's important. But in their minds, the Great Commission was one of the last things Jesus said to them. And because of that, it changed everything. And so the historical context of the Great Commission, both the fact it's a resurrection appearance and the last thing Jesus said to his disciples, means it's going to be significant for the church. And that's great for the disciples. I mean, we see it play out in the book of Acts. Some of y'all apparently got to think about that this morning in your Sunday school class. And you see that they take this message to heart, and they go and spread the gospel to all the ends of the earth. But how does that have anything to do with those of us who weren't there on the mountain in Galilee? I mean, the historical context is great. But what about us who are in a different historical context? Well, there's another context that's even more important than history, and it's the theological context. See, Jesus' book ends the actual command of the Great Commission with two things, with an assurance of his universal authority and a promise of his abiding presence. Right? And this is the theological context that makes the Great Commission have teeth makes it mean something for people who weren't there on the mountain in Galilee. I mean, first he says, you probably caught this, that he possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, if you're an astute reader to the Gospels, you know that Jesus has already made a public display of his authority. I mean, all throughout the Gospels, everywhere he goes, he opens his mouth and teaches. And people say, who is this who teaches with authority? And one time he heals a man who couldn't walk. And the Pharisees are talking among themselves. And he says, you think it's hard for me to heal a man who can't walk? Well, so that you'll know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. This is who Jesus is. He exercises his authority. Even another one where the disciple says, who is this that even the, the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus has authority. Okay, that's just kind of a fact. People know it's public. He's demonstrated it. But when Jesus shows up on the mountain in Galilee, he's not talking about the authority he possessed during his earthly ministry. I don't even think he's talking about the authority that he possessed from all eternity as the Son of God. He is talking about the authority that is his by right of his resurrection and his role as king. That's the authority he's talking about. Not the authority that he demonstrated during his ministry, not the authority from eternity past. He's talking about a new kind of authority. The kind of authority that the Father gave to him, all authority has been given. The Father gave him this authority after his resurrection. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians 2, in the name that's above every name, that he subjected every rule and authority under his feet. This is the post-resurrection exalted authority of Jesus, and it's universal. Nothing exists outside of his authority. So because of that, the theological context dictates that this great commission is going to have 
validity and influence on the church beyond anybody who was there in that particular historical context. This is the authority that we're going to see in January when we finally get to Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel 7.13. If you've got your Bible, why don't you turn there. I want to read this to you so I can whet your appetite for it and so you can see how extensive this authority really is. Daniel 7 happens in the, the first year of King Belshazzar. It's a vision of beasts, and which I believe represent four kingdoms, and we'll talk about that in January. But the four kingdoms uh, and the authority that they possess, the dominion they have, all sort of seems irrelevant in light of what Daniel sees in Daniel 7.13. And in Daniel 7.13, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Ooh. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." Listen, here's the thing. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Don't miss it. The authority Jesus is talking about is the same authority that Daniel sees in Daniel 7. The authority that says, guys, when you go and make disciples of all the nations, they're going to turn and repent and accept me because they belong to me already. Uh, Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. See, so when Jesus sends his disciples out to fulfill the Great Commission, what he's doing is he is sending them to take the ground that is already his by right. He already has universal authority, and he is sending his disciples out to make it known. And that authority didn't have a time limit, didn't have a self-destruct mechanism. It goes on and on and on forever. His dominion, his kingdom will never end. And so the context that matters for the Great Commission is not just the historical, but the theological, because it tells us that Jesus' authority is active and operative in 1944 and in 2020. He's already Lord of all, and he sends us out to proclaim that news. And so according to Jesus, we're not sent out on our ability to persuade or convict people. We're sent out in his authority. All right, so that's the first bookend. But the second bookend comes in verse 20, when he says, Lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. And I think this is a promise of Jesus' abiding presence. And think about it. What good is it to Peter, to James, to John, to Thaddeus, to those 11 disciples that Jesus promises that he's going to be with them till the end of the age? What was the life expectancy of a Palestinian peasant in the first century? They maybe got 20 years left of their lives to live. So as long as, hey, Jesus, don't worry about that. Just promise you're going to be with us for the next 15 years. The next 20 years, we'll be all right. But Jesus wasn't just concerned about his disciples who were there in that historical context. There was something bigger at play. There's a theological context that he wants us all to know that Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age. Even to 1944, Jesus promises his presence with us when we go in his authority to make disciples. In 2020, we don't go alone. He promises to be with us each step of the way. And so 
yeah, this Great Commission comes to us in a different historical context than it did to the first disciples and even to the brothers and sisters in 1944 who filled these pews. But we're still anchored to the same rock. The authority of Jesus overall and the promise of his abiding presence. And so because of that, you know, we, we think, we look at our world, we say, oh, this culture is gone. People are too entrenched in their sin. Families are too broken and dysfunctional. Teenagers are too glued to their cell phones. How could we ever go and make disciples? It's one thing in 1944, but man, 2020 is different. But listen, the theological context of the Great Commission tells us that while the world may change, 77 years, a lot has changed, but Jesus stays the same. He still possesses universal authority, and he still promises to be with his people as they go join him in his disciple-making mission. So that's why I think there's significance to the Great Commission for people in 1944 and for people in 2020. All right, so that's the context of the Great Commission. I'm sorry, uh, you're going to have to hang with me because we got one more. We got the command of the Great Commission, and that's verses 19 and 20 where he says, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's the command of the Great Commission. And if we were trying to figure out why exactly the Great Commission is significant for us, we'd do well just to say, well, Brad, you know, don't make it more complicated than this. Jesus just said to go do it. And if you said that, you would be absolutely right. I mean, that is the case. The command of the Great Commission is what compels Christians in every generation to join Jesus in his disciple-making mission. No doubt. But because it's so obvious, it sometimes, I don't know, comes in one ear and goes out the other. But he did it for his disciples, right? The 11 who were gathered, this was a command to continue what had already begun in their lives. What he was sending them out to do was a continuation of the previous three years of their lives. They had spent three years as his disciples. Now he was sending them out to bring all the nations into the same kind of relationship with Jesus that they possessed themselves. And I start to think, you know, disciple is a, a church word. It's one of those religious lingos. And depending on who you talk to, you know, discipleship can mean all different kind of things. Uh, discipleship can mean a certain type of class that happens on Sunday night at five o'clock before the evening worship service, or it can be a certain type of curriculum. Uh, I know the major discipleship curriculum I was sort of indoctrinated with was the Disciples' Cross. So if you want to make disciples, lead people through the Disciples' Cross, and if they can hang with you, then go to experiencing God. That is discipleship, and if you'll just get people to do that, you'll be successful in the Great Commission. But surely Jesus' disciples thought something else. And so I, I did some searching. And the word for disciple, the Greek word for disciple, is only used in Matthew's gospel to describe the 12 disciples who are personally called by Jesus. Search of the whole gospel of Matthew, the word disciple, only talks about the 12. They were the people that Jesus had come to in Matthew chapter 4. Looked them in the face. Matthew follow me. They're the disciples who heard Jesus' teaching. He said, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. A disciple is a person who 
sees Jesus going somewhere and says, wherever he's going, I'm going with him. I'm following him. So a disciple is a follower of Jesus, not just in the sense of, hey, I follow that guy, but they actually get their life in line behind him and go where he goes and do what he does. But they're also a learner. Jesus tells them that a disciple is not above his teacher. So disciples are called to hear Jesus' commandments and learn from him. That's why he could say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Right? Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Learn. A disciple is a person who follows Jesus where he's going and who learns what he's doing, what he's teaching, so they can pattern their life after him. Without a doubt, that's what Jesus' 11 disciples had done. They had taken in every word that he spoke. They had gone with him every place that he went. And when he said, all right, guys, this is your chance. This is your marching orders. This is the commencement address as you are graduating the school of discipleship under the professorship of Jesus Christ. Go make disciples. Make people who follow me, who learn from me, and pattern their life after me. That's what Jesus means when he says, make a disciple. But just because he knew that, I guess maybe people in 2020 are going to be particularly hard-headed and wrangle over the definition of what a disciple is, he makes it really clear. And he puts two guardrails so that as we veer from one to the other, we stay on the path of discipleship. And the two guardrails are baptism and obedience. Right? He says you're going to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. That's what it means to be a disciple. New disciples identify with Jesus in baptism. That's what he says. And he says baptize them in the name of. That, that phrase, in the name of, means to associate with a person or identify with them. Or it can even mean to pledge allegiance to them. Now, we're Baptists, and so baptism is obviously important to us. We see it as the first act of obedience, the initiation into church membership, and all the privileges that come with it. Um, That's what our statement of faith says. But what is baptism really? Why? Why go through the trouble of getting baptized? It's so weird. We'd go into the water, and people would clap when we come up. What's the big deal? Well, in a person's baptism, they are publicly declaring to all the world that they are associating with Jesus. They're identifying with him. They're pledging their allegiance to him. That they want to be known as a Christian, a person who follows and patterns their life on the teaching of Jesus. That way, I've often thought of the baptism as like a a jersey. I've got a jersey hanging in my room that I'm going to try to sell on eBay because it's a Braves jersey, and on the back it says Freddie Fre- it says Freeman, 24. Freddie Freeman is the first baseman for the Atlanta Braves, and he was just named the National League MVP. So I'm thinking this jersey is probably worth as much as it's ever going to be worth. So why not, you know, make a little bit? But when, you know, if I put that jersey on, I did, just being honest with you. I, I got that jersey when I went to the uh, opening of SunTrust Park in Atlanta a couple of years ago with my granddad. I got this Freddie Freeman jersey. I love Freddie Freeman. He's a great guy. But, you know, when I put that jersey on, nobody's under any illusions that I'm Freddie Freeman. <laughs> All right? 
They know I'm a fan of Freddie, but they don't, they know, hey, that guy, not Freddie Freeman. Okay, it's obvious. He's taller than me, a lot more trim, a lot more agile. You should see him. That's why he's MVP. But when people see the jersey on Freddie Freeman, they know. That guy plays for the Braves. He's got the uniform, the outfit. It's obvious to everybody he associates with this team. He identifies with this team. He pledges his allegiance to the Braves. That's kind of the way baptism works. It's also like, I don't know if you know this, but you know soldiers on the battlefield wear infrared patches on their uniforms so that as they are fighting battles, they're looking through their infrared goggles, a little color pops up to identify the friendlies, people on their side, so that when the officer the commanding officer who's overseeing all the battlefield tactics, telling people to go this place and that place, is sitting above the action in his helicopter. They're watching Washington, D.C. from a drone. They can identify where the soldiers are in the field by this infrared patch on their uniform. It's obvious to everybody who sees those screens, who sees Freddie Freeman on the field. He doesn't play for the Yankees. He plays for the Braves. And that's the way baptism works. A person says, hey, I want to follow Jesus. I want to pattern my life after him. They publicly identify, associate, and pledge their allegiance to him by being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But listen, baptism is not the end-all, be-all to discipleship. Even if, and get me, even if we want to pretend like it is, that if we can just get people in the waters and out, We've been faithful to fulfill the Great Commission. But listen, baptism's the starting line, not the finish line. Baptism has to be matched with obedience to the teachings of Jesus. To be Freddie Freeman, I can't just put on the jersey. I gotta actually be the guy, do what he does. And so Jesus says you gotta teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now there are four alls in the Great Commission. Could have looked at those, we're not. But when he says, command you, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded, he means all in the same sense that he means all authority has been given to me. And I want you to go to all the nations. I want you to teach them to obey all the things that I've taught you. He means all. If there's no realm of the universe that's outside of the domain of Christ's authority, then there's no commandment that's exempted from this statement. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Now, I've told you Matthew likes the teaching of Jesus. He presents Jesus, I think, as a new Moses. And there are five sermons in the book of Deuteronomy, and Matthew structures his gospel around five major teaching sections of Jesus. The first one is the one I preached through last summer, the one that sticks out in our minds, the Sermon on the Mount. In it, Jesus lays out what it means to be a disciple, the type of life a disciple is going to live. He says, anybody who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the wind came and the rains fell, the floods rose, his house was safe. Jesus expects that his disciples are going to live obediently before him. That means the Great Commission tells us 
that we have a responsibility to teach new disciples to obey Jesus. You hear me? The Great Commission tells us that we, that's us, have a responsibility to teach new disciples to obey Jesus. Obedience is not a suggested course of action for the disciple of Jesus. It's not a good idea, something you may want to get around to at some point. Discipleship is obedience. We have a responsibility to teach new disciples that. And that might would require, if you think about that, discipleship means obeying Jesus, that might would require us to kind of give a heads up to the person who wants to be baptized. Hey, we hear you. Baptism's important. Jesus says any disciple who wants to follow him needs to be baptized. But hang on just a second. I want to make sure you understand. You need to count the cost before you commit to following Jesus. That he expects you to obey everything he commanded, and we're going to come alongside you as your church family, and we're going to teach you. We're going to bring you up and hold your hand so that you know what kind of life Jesus is calling you to live. Because he commanded us in his great commission to teach you to obey everything he commanded. So we have a, a sacred responsibility to learn from him ourselves, to follow him, to pattern our life after him, and then to help you do the same. You know, that kind of thing might negatively impact discipleship numbers overall. Because it would require people to actually know what they're getting into. So if I want to be a disciple of Jesus, it's not just about going in the water. It's about patterning my life after him. And so the command of the Great Commission means that it's significant, not just for those who were there the first day, but in every generation. Because if we were to take seriously, and, and we're kind of coming to a close, so listen carefully. If we were to take Jesus' command seriously, to teach new disciples to obey everything he commanded, if we just use Matthew as our curriculum, walking through it chapter by chapter, pointing out the things Jesus taught, showing them that this is what he's calling you to as well, helping them navigate what that's going to look like in 2020 and the chaos around them, eventually we get to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Jesus' parting words to his disciples. And we'd have to tell them, hey, look, there's an ongoing theological context to this great commission that you need to know. Jesus has affirmed that he has universal authority and he has promised his abiding presence with us, which means the Great Commission is valid not just for the first generation of believers, but in every generation. And that means he's calling you to join him in his disciple-making mission in your generation. And if you're committed to being his disciple, you will obey him. You'll obey everything he commanded you, this command included. It'll be a perpetual cycle where we, Jesus' disciples, patterning our life on him, obeying everything he's taught us, will go out and we'll make disciples. We'll join him in his disciple-making mission in our generation. And those new disciples will commit themselves to learning from him and following him, patterning their life after him, and in turn, they'll respond in obedience to the Great Commission so that as they go out and make new disciples, the ongoing mission of Christ to save the nations is fulfilled. And so if you want to know what compels a group of men and women, mostly women probably, 
to go door to door, North Magnolia, Austin Street, Fannin, South Laurel, the Gulf Camp. What compels them to go and compile a list of 200 names, people who may or may not know Jesus, but for sure don't have a church home? They believe that Jesus was calling them to join him in his disciple-making mission. And you know what? Their faithfulness was rewarded. In 1944, Central Baptist Church baptized 20 new disciples. 1945, they baptized, baptized 19. 1946, they baptized 28 new disciples of Jesus. They took his Great Commission command seriously. We're going to go and we're going to baptize new disciples. I think I got a picture of those folks. You got it, Scott? Here they are, picture of them in 1946 or so. They took his command seriously. They obeyed. But listen, it's not just the call to baptism. It's also to obedience and teaching the new disciples to obey. And as I was looking through this list, you know, there are some names I know. Um, looking through here. Came down to the last page, though. The cradle roll prospects. One year old and younger. Saw a name at the top. Lee Gordon Barnett. One year old. Old San Marcos Road. His people are Baptist. I said, I know Gordon. Gordon's been an encouragement to me since the day I got here. Deacon in our church, serving as building and grounds chairman last year. Kids love the Lord. Deacons, minister of music here. Grandkids brought up in this church. Somewhere along the way, somebody who put his name on here, probably he told me his mom, they weren't satisfied just to see Gordon baptized. But they impressed on him the need to obey Jesus, pattern his life after Jesus, to love like Jesus loved, to have compassion on people nobody else wants to give any time to. And here he is today. Of course, all the Barnett boys are there. Johnny and Harvey, 10 years old, old San Marcos Road, not a Christian, not a church member, prefers Central Baptist Church. Now, I never got a chance to meet Harvey, but he was a deacon here too. Y'all know that. But I know the fruit of Harvey's life. I know his daughter who's singing up here this morning. I know his granddaughter playing the piano. I know his grandson, our summer youth intern, who invested in the lives of teenagers at Central Baptist Church in a way that we need again. We need somebody to invest in teenagers like Caleb did. So I want you to know, there are some one-year-old kids in this town who 77 years from now are going to have kids and grandkids of their own. What are they going to be doing? There's a 10-year-old kid probably playing basketball at Longer Park right now who needs somebody to believe that Jesus has called them 
to join him in his disciple-making mission in their generation. To believe that the lost people in our town, heads up, there are more than 200 of them, are going to die and spend an eternity apart from Christ unless somebody believes the Great Commission applies to them. So this morning, what is keeping us, what's keeping you from joining Jesus in his disciple-making mission? We know we got all the resources God could give us. Universal authority, abiding presence forever and ever. Only thing I can figure is the thing that keeps us from joining Jesus in his mission is disobedience. Disobedience. So this morning I've got a couple of questions for you. Maybe in your life, what would keep you from joining Jesus in his mission? The first question is this. Are you a disciple? A disciple is not a Christian, not a church member. The disciple is a person who follows Jesus where he goes, who learns from Jesus and patterns their life after him, who obeys the things he's commanded. And so it's an easy question to answer. Am I a disciple? Well, have you been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Have you publicly identified and pledged your allegiance to Jesus? If you haven't, you're not a disciple. Second question is a little more, ooh, a little tougher. Am I obeying all the things that Jesus commanded? Jesus said his disciples will obey everything he commanded. And so if you want to join Jesus in his disciple-making mission, first step is to be a disciple, to be baptized, publicly demonstrating to the world that you're on his team, and then committing your life to living for Jesus. But the second question is a little more challenging, a little more difficult to maybe wrap our minds around. Am I joining Jesus in his disciple-making mission? Are you actively seeking out opportunities to preach the good news, to share the gospel, to make disciples of all nations? You know, I think for most of us, it'll be like it was for Gordon's mom. The biggest impact we'll have for the kingdom will be in the lives of our kids. And so young parents ought to invest themselves in children, teaching them why we do the things we do, this is why we sing at church. This is why we pray before we eat. This is why we open our Bible. This is why we go to church. We want to hear from God and meet with his people. That's the biggest impact most people will have for the kingdom. But we need to look for opportunities at work and with our neighbors, to meet our neighbors again, to invite them for an outdoor, socially distanced, hand-waving and finger-gunning barbecue. Looking for opportunities to invest Maybe somebody wants to go to the next step, though. You want to do more than just hope and pray for opportunities. You want to actually get ready and have an active part in this disciple-making mission. And if that's the case, in January, I'm going to give you an opportunity to go through a six-week training to become a disciple-maker, to know how to take a new Christian and walk them through the Gospel of Mark, to come to grips with who Jesus is, what Jesus taught, the kind of life he calls his disciples to live, and help you know how to influence them, how to grow them 
into their faith. And I believe that as you go through that training, you'll find yourself growing. You'll rediscover who Jesus is. You'll uncover teaching that you never knew, you never understood. And as a result, you'll be fired up to join him in his disciple-making mission in our generation. And 70 years from now, the legacy we leave together as a church will go beyond a building, but it will be people whose lives have changed generations for Jesus. You want to do that? Yeah? Well, let's pray and ask God to help us.